Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wimbledon Football Club, formed in 1889 in south-west London as Wimbledon Old Centrals. Tonight we are joined on TalkSport by four of the men who played their part in a magical era for the club when their exploits on and off the pitch earned them the title, The Crazy Gang. An era which saw the Dons elected to the Football League in 1977, going on to reach the top flight nine years later before famously winning the FA Cup in 1988. In the studio to tell this amazing story is Dave Harry Bassett, who captained the side during Wimbledon's glory-laden Southern League days before leading them from the old fourth division to English football's top flight during six and a half years as manager. Alongside him tonight is a true Wimbledon cult hero who represented the club from 1977 to 1988, Wally Downs. Plus, we have two other members of the Wimbledon side which rose to prominence during the 80s. Former defender Mark Morris, who played in all four divisions for the club, and the man who scored the goal, which secured the Don's promotion to the top flight in 1986, as well as the winner in the FA Cup final two years later, Laurie Sanchez. On TalkSport this evening, Messrs Bassett, Downs, Morris and Sanchez join me to tell the story of the crazy gang. I mean, what kind of place was it? Amazing place even when it was in the Premier League and the top level of English football. What kind of place was Wimbledon Football Club when, when you were in the Southern League? Well, I joined Wimbledon in the Southern League when the amateur days were finished. Um, the, I was playing for Walton and Hersham. I was captain of Walton and Hersham. And Alan Batsford, who took over at Wimbledon. And Wimbledon were at a low ebb at that particular time. They had not been successful for a long time. They were living off the amateur cup when they'd been in the Southern League for a long time without being objective. And uh, Alan Batsford took over and he took myself... Billy Edwards, Dave Donaldson, Roger Connell and Kieran Summers over to uh, Wimbledon. But Walton, the team you played for, had had a, a, a brilliant cup victory over Brighton. He went and went just over there and bought the whole team, yeah? Well, he put the five us <laughs> because, as I say, the amateur days... The, the, other, the other six must have been terrible, yeah? Uh, no, well, no, there was there was only six other players, Dickie Guy, Ian Cook, Jeff oh, yeah, Bryant. Yeah, yeah. They, they were there. We had a squad of about 13 players and um, Alan went there and uh, he then got the whole thing moving in a brilliant way, really. Uh, I, I know you think the world of Alan and it, clearly he was he was doing something right because you were champions of the Southern, the old Southern League in 1975, 1976 and 1977. Yeah, we won the Southern League title three times in that particular time. We won the Southern League Cup twice. We had a great cup run where we knocked Burnley out the cup up in the third round and had the replays uh, with Leeds. The following year, we lost to Brentford in the FA Cup. And then the following year, we lost to Middlesbrough in the third round after a replay. So it was an amazing time in that particular three years. And it was those cup runs, I guess, that, you know, despite the endless winning of the Southern League and knocking on the door of the, of the Football League, um, it was those cup runs um, that brought you to national attention because 
the, the victory you mentioned there against Burnley was the first time that a top-level team had lost on their own ground to a lower league club. Uh, sorry, to a team for outside for a half a century. That's correct. And yeah. the Leeds United one. I mean, they were they were they were they were trying to be champions of Europe at the time. Yeah, that's right. They were up the top. Jimmy Armfield had taken over from Don Reeve. The whole team was full of internationals: the Scottish, you know, Irish, English, and everything else. They were the top team. They were, you know, they weren't the best love team, but they could certainly play and they were good and they could handle themselves as well. These were the days, of course, before automatic relegation and promotion from the football league into the uh, what's now the now the national league, but it was then as I say one of them was the. Southern League, there was Northern League as well. Can you remember as a, as a young player what it meant to the club to when when finally, after those three championships, they were elected at the expense of Workington, I think? That's right. I, I like the young player. I was coming yeah. to the end of my career. You're still a young man. Uh, a young man. But it was an unbelievable three years. And what happened is Ron Nodes had come in halfway through. Bernie Coleman wanted to move out the club. I introduced Ron, who was chairman of South, or he was ambitious to go, and he moved in. And he did a fantastic job. We did the work on the field by getting the success. He did amazing off the work, off the scene, you know, strumming up votes and everything else to get us in the league and when we made it I remember at the Cafe Royal it was unbelievable all of a sudden we got the vote and uh, it was good celebrations then all of a sudden you realise that we were a bit of an ageing team and uh, you know half of those players weren't going to be able to play in the league because their, their business commitments meant that uh, they couldn't do that they could only play part time football The first win for Wimbledon the first league match rather uh, happened against Halifax at Plough Lane on the 20th of August 1977 I keep using these dates guys because it's so extraordinary how quickly everything happens uh, you know it'll never happen again in front of 4,616 spectators uh, Laurie Sanchez you played a couple of weeks later. You played against them on, I think. I'm, I, I was a schoolboy. I was a yeah, schoolboy at 17. Uh, in Reading at the time. Yeah. Um, studying for my A levels. Um, I literally joined Reading that season, being a schoolboy at Southampton. 1st of October 1977, so how many, a couple of months into the season, I made my debut for Reading as a schoolboy, playing against Wimbledon, um, playing in central midfield against Stevie Gallius, who I later went on to play with. And um, who was accompanied by Dave Bassett in the centre of midfield? Was Dave any good as a player? Can you remember? Can't remember. No. Let me ask you. <laughs> that is a very diplomatic answer, and I have to tell you, one of the reasons we're here is because uh, uh, Dave Bassett and Wally Downs have written a book called The Crazy Gang: um, The True Inside Story of Football's Greatest Miracle. Um, let me tell you, that is not a diplomatic book. There are no punches pulled inside there, as many of the old players and managers are, t- are talked about very quickly. Laurie. I mean, it's easy to romanticise this story. I bet you, when you made your debut, you didn't think, "Wow, this is the, something amazing happening down there in, in South London." You must have thought, "Here's just another another new club in the league. What are they up to?" Well, as a 17-year-old schoolboy, so I was more interested in making my debut for my hometown team. So the team we were playing against was pretty irrelevant at the time. It's only in later hindsight when you look back and see that, let's say, I played with Steve Gallows in the in the first division. Um, in the when I when there is in centre midfield we both played together when we first went up to the first division as was then um, and as I say Dave went on to be my manager so and the irony of ironies is that my last full game that I started in the in um, in football in this country um, was against Wimbledon when I was at Swindon Mark I mean you were a young footballer in South London you were probably expecting I suppose to play at your career outside the football league you're on the lowest uh, although in the lower leagues maybe I don't know maybe you thought you were going to play for England I'm not sure but you cannot have imagined you were going to do, do what you did with the crazy game uh, for sure I mean I was a young lad playing Sunday football come in very late most of my mates were at clubs like Chelsea Palace Tottenham um, I think Dario Grady was the manager at the time um, and the club decided to go with six apprentices one year which was a massive leap forward I think for them anyway there was uh, myself Paul Fishington uh, Glenn Hodges, 
Gary Waterman, Keith Hyder, and um, Mark Wright. Well, that's one of the things we'll return to, one of the themes that I think often gets overlooked in this story, that Wimbledon um, started producing its own cl- players out of an academy um, long before that was a, the fashionable thing to do, and, and you know, before the big academies were set up, um, and many of them went on to play top-level football, many of them went on to be international footballers. Wally Downs is here with us as well, a co-author of the book, The Crazy Game, that we're going to talk about a little later on. Um, Wally, yourself, how did you get involved with this team? Well, I, I was playing. I played my last ever game for West London Schools against Merton, and uh, luckily enough, Ron Nodes and Alan Smith, who was the reserve team manager, were there. Uh, my career would have been sort of certainly not at a pro level straight away. There was only two of us as uh, apprentices, me and Nigel Blazy, and I think the, the the big leap of faith the club took wasn't a club's leap of faith, it was because the YTS scheme was introduced yeah. and the government paid for it. That's why we took some more apprentices on. <laughs> let, me ask, let me ask the, those of you who were at the club at the time, that, so Laurie, you'll have to take a back seat yeah. slightly here. Um, we've gone on to learn a great deal. We're talking about the football in just a second. But, you know, um, setting fire to people's clothes, nailing boots to the walls and all the rest of it. Where did that come from? Did it was it always there, even in the early days? The first time anything of that sort of happened was uh, Dave Besson came in on a moped, a six foot five, fifty cc moped, black leathers, helmet, the lot. Uh, played in a game, didn't let a goal in, but managed to kick the ball from one end of the pitch to the other. So we signed him immediately. <laughs> uh, he was really happy about it until he got in the car park, put his helmet on, and it was full up with talcum powder, <laughs> and it, it all jumped, it all went down on his black leathers. And he just said, "Right, the next player that comes." I'm going to do something to him. And it was an initiation thing, you know, just playing a prank on someone. But uh, I've got to say, in my time, there was, we, there was no burning clothes. I think that sort of escalated yeah, so a little thing, bit yeah. after. Yeah. Did you encourage this sort of thing when you, as a young manager? Yeah, I didn't mind it. I mean, when as a, when I played with that Wimbledon team with Dickie Guy, we were all doing all sorts of things, playing tricks on one another. I mean, Dick really turned up. We all turned up in jeans and everything else. Dick ter- kept on turning up in his Wimbledon blazer and tie and everything else and started getting the ump when I was cutting his tie up and uh, tying his jacket up and uh, putting water in his shoes and everything else. And so much so that he grabbed hold of me one day, he said, I need to have a worby. And we went in the kit room. He said, come on, we're going to have it out. He said, I'm fed up with you lot taking the mickey out of me and everything else and I just started laughing and everything else and then we converted and then Dick become a complete lunatic you know one day I'm sitting in the uh, toilet in the trap and all of a sudden uh, a bucket of water comes straight over the top and I was uh, drowned so uh, it, we, we were doing sort of pranks you know we enjoyed yeah. ourselves team spirit we, we, we had good spirit at Wimbledon we didn't win the three titles just without having a spirit well tell me about tell me about the, uh, the when you got into the league then guys um because the story ought to be, you know, we got in the league and we rode up through the league and eventually we got into the Premier League and we won the FA Cup. But it's not as simple as that because being Wimbledon, it isn't as simple as that, Mark. The first five years, you you go promoted, relegated, promoted, relegated, promoted. You're bouncing up and down between uh, le- yeah, well, the old fourth and third division. Well, my first season was third division when we yeah. eventually got relegated. And um, to be fair, I think... Now i found out whose problem it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was saying, I think Harry had brought through several of the young youth team at the time and we just wasn't physically strong enough in that division that year um, got good experience played a few more games ended up going down and I think we come back with record amount of points the season after from the from the fourth division so at the time Harry was probably forced into playing us when he probably would have wanted to leave it a little bit longer got forced into playing it got relegated but the season after we come back with a flourish. Let me ask you about the, the, the standard of football in the, in the or third and fourth division. Now a great deal of um, uh, in, the, in league what are now leagues one and two there's an awful lot of people to, uh, 
trying to emulate Barcelona. You know what I mean? They're trying to pass the ball about. Um, and, of course, it's mentioned all the time on television. Oh, look, they're really trying to string a few passes here together. What kind of football were, 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 could you characterise it? Or was it all different kinds of teams in those it lower was, leagues? It was very physical. Uh, you know, there were very stereotypical teams. You'd have a couple of cloggers at fullback. You'd have two big centre-halves, two big centre-forwards, two little nippy wingers. And it was a lot of the time when you go up north, it would be forget the ball, get on with the game. Uh, no television replays, and it was every man for himself. Uh, the, the pitches were would be deemed unplayable now uh, a lot of the time during the winter, but uh, you just got on with it. And I think there was more blood and thunder and more crowd entertainment than there certainly is. I mean, I watched the Leeds game last night, 2-0 down, 10 minutes to go, and they're having 15 passes in their own half. No wonder you know, the crowd were quiet. And It was a different game then, and, and it was more... On attacking and having goal mouth incident and 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 but part of the reason was the the type of pitches you played on as well. Like yeah. Once you once you got past November, the pitches deteriorated big time. You know, the goal mouths were were bare. It was it was mud. So the only way you could get the ball, you couldn't pass the ball on those pitches. So lower down, now you go to a lower league ground. Pitches are superb from first day to last day. Therefore that. That encourages people to want to pass it more on, on the ground. So is, there has been a change in the quality of pitches that people play on. That, that, that's definitely And helped. that's why Wimbledon were able to beat, um, have, have a go at Leeds, because on, a, on poor pitches, they were, they were equal, you know. If, they, if Leeds couldn't pass the ball as nicely as they wanted to, then Wimbledon can play to their strengths. We're going to hear, as the, in the course of this two hours, you know, as well as your, the four of you, um, a whole selection of people who have gone on um, people talk about um, there's no characters left in the game. Oh, that's because all the characters eventually ended up at Wimbledon Football Club, it seems to me. Um, we talked about Dave Besant signing, an extraordinary man, an extraordinary career as well. Um, talk to me, uh, Dave, I'll start with you. In January of 79, as you were doing this yo-yoing up and down between the, the third and fourth division, Sam Hamam arrives, another person whose name um, rings far beyond uh, perhaps even his achievements in the game. Tell us about Sam Hammam and his influence on the club. Well, Sam uh, came looking to join an English club. He, it was something he wanted to do. He'd been to Chelsea. They weren't interested. He sauntered in and saw Ron and waved £25,000 cheque. Ron, uh, you know, was highly delighted to bank that straight away and made him a director. He bought the club for £25,000? No, no, no. Oh, no, no. To, to get right. himself to get on, him the on the board. board. All right, I was going to say. He, he even on. Wimbledon, come on. <laughs> he got on the board and, and he, was, uh, he was there as a director in those days and uh, he really didn't come to prominence until Ron moved to Crystal Palace and decided to go there. Sam was going to go to Crystal Palace with him and then Sam changed his mind and decided to stay at Wimbledon and sort of became the chief exec but he was also working abroad a lot of that time so uh, he wasn't here every week or anything else but he he was the owner of the club, he was responsible and we had a board of directors there working for the club and I had a responsibility. Basically Sam insisted that I was in involved in everything commercial uh, I knew what was going on in Nelson's nightclub the pub the whole you thing yeah, not everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, yeah well I'm, I, the, the, the accounts I may add not the uh, uh, but and, and uh, that was part and parcel I had to go to the, all the board meetings and do it as well as uh, you know running the football side another thing that occurred to me is that it's, the story is now so well known and whether it's occasionally told with a bias towards one thing or another, the BT documentary, we'll come on to talk about that a little later on, or the book that you, the two of you have just put together, uh, written. It's the story, it seems to be, you know, again, all about this upward curve. But what, try and think back, Mark and Wally and yourself, who were playing in those early days, going up and down the divisions. 
what was your what was the club's ambition? Did it have any ambitions? You know, was it just happy to be in the football league, or was there something more going on? Because it, does, it, it otherwise, I don't I don't understand how it suddenly took off. You know, well, our our ambition as players is just to you know win the next game always. You know, the the, the club Ron had said initially that he wanted to get the club and Dario into the first division in in ten twelve years, and we did it in nine. But I mean, that was there were some days when we you know going up the motorway with an eight track. Uh, cassette and all we had for the whole season was Love on the Rocks, Neil Diamond. No one thought to change it. All the way up there, all the way back, 26 away, well, 20 away games and that's what we listened to. So our ambition was it wasn't probably... Stuck, it wasn't stuck in the no, plan, was no, it, No, no, no. No one thought about bringing a different one. Well, to be fair, I think the ambition was to get another contract at the end of the season. Mm. That was the massive thing. It was... Used to play and just every game and guy used to come in up was thinking, have I done enough today to get me my next contract? But Dave, you have to think wider than that, don't you? And when they were, when you were going up and down and you become the manager, what were your ambitions for this football club? Well, I got the opportunity uh, went to work with Dario when Dario was the manager as assistant manager. But Ron Nodes brought Dario in because Ron said youth was the future and we had to go and that's why Dario first come to us to work under Alan Batsford with the youth in bringing players in and Ron realised we weren't going to be able to compete financially we had to produce our own um, and we were fortunate as I say Mark Morris uh, Paul Fishing and Glyn Hodges came we had three out of six that actually did brilliant and played in every division for the club but in those early days uh, Dar- we, Dario got us promotion he, when he took over we were fighting relegation we stayed up Dario got promotion we got relegated the following season the halfway through that season um, Dario decided to go to Palace with Ron I was promoted to manager at that time and it was a matter of creating a situation and I knew a lot I was looking after the reserves I had Wally I had Glyn I had Paul Fishington I had Mark Morris there was a lot of younger players that we were working with and, and I decided we had to give them the chance to go we were we were fortunate when I took over in the January 81 we were 13th we finished third and got promoted um, when I thought it was dead easy but a year later when we got relegated it mm-hmm. wasn't so easy but what happened is we had that year one or two of our best players, Tommy Cunningham was sold, Steve Parsons went, um, Stevie Galliers went to Crystal Palace, and we were battling. And, and what it was meant that people like Mark and them started, they had to play, in fairness, you know, and Wally was regular. But we, as they said, they were young, all young lads, and it was hard in that league. But we stuck with them, and at the end of the season, we went down, and, you know, during that time, Besant joined us, and, and one or two other players started to evolve into the team that for, for us. So we got got a good start for the following season. Uh, guys, in the last section, um, we could easily get into all the detail about the football matches that saw the, you bouncing up and down between the third and fourth division. Um, but uh, Wally Downs mentioned there Nelson's nightclub. And, um, you know, all football fans are fascinated by the way footballers live. Um, maybe it's changed a bit now. Tell me about, about the nightclub. So it was actually in the ground, is that right? Well, it was, a, it was about 20 paces from the dressing room. and It was executive lounge during the day. And the players would go in there, and you know that was part of the the buzz of the people going in. They could meet the players after the game, so we go in there. One thing would inevitably lead to another. Uh, those people would leave, our wives and all that would be there. They'd go home and get changed, come back. They turned into a nightclub at nine o'clock. We'd still be there chewing the game over. Harry would come down half cut from the from the director's box if we'd lost, and there'd be a row would ensue. Uh, Harry'd go home, and the rest of us would stay there and crack on for the rest of the night. And two it, o'clock in the morning. And three it, o'clock in the it morning. sounds like just a, like his drinking club, but actually, um, it's more important than that because I know even now outside of the football league, when you get down into sort of magnificent pyramid of English football, 
these clubs are very important because the footballers drink with the fans at a club. And that doesn't happen. It didn't happen in those days in the top leagues. I mean, because well, I, tro- tro- I, I remember my dad used to come to all the games regularly with my granddad, and they used to love having a pint after the game. And when we started getting up through the leagues, they went to places like Spurs, couldn't get a pint, and started moaning, giving it up. I preferred it when you were back down the leagues. <laughs> That's the exact club I was thinking of where this didn't happen, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> So yeah, that was it. Was I preferred it when he was playing back down the league. How does that work? How did it work with Wimbledon? Because um, what, many, many clubs would say, you know, oh, the strength of this club is we get we get these thirty thousand people, we get these twenty thousand people. It was a luxury you never had as a club as you come up through the leagues of having a large number of people following you. Well, we were very grounded and, and very irreverent about everything that was going on. You know, there's nothing better than to to be the you know the lowest paid. Uh, the which worst, you were the worst crowds, which you were the smallest budget, the smallest transfer I imagine fees. You were, yeah. In, in every game we played, even against Rochdale's and people like that. So when we went away to Huddersfield, if we went up a division, it still applied. When we went up into the Championship, it still applied. If we had a cup game and drew Berry, it probably still applied. You know, I can't ever remember going into a game where we weren't the underdogs. It's a cliche. I'm looking at two people, three people. I'm looking at you, Marcus, the one who probably hasn't managed a football club, as far as I'm aware. Am I wrong? No, non- Dorchester, non-league Dorchester. Okay, town, fine. Yeah. So you all, being the underdog, um, is a good thing. You just you can you can use it in the dressing room, but it becomes part of the culture at Wimbledon. Well, you have to. That's the facts, as Wally said. Uh, our budgets and what players were there, they deserved to earn more. But the budget was such, and Sam was very strict on it. I had to uh, run the budget, and uh, we weren't allowed to spend over it. So you, it, it's part and parcel. So you just brought the players there and said, you know, there's an opportunity. If you succeed, you can move on to pastures new. But that was everybody knew it and accepted it. What about um, uh, the, the other parts of the game? The, the, nowadays, football clubs, forgive me, I, I can't believe about a third of the stadium is taken up with the technical areas because there's so many people now on the benches, sports scientists and all the rest of it. Um, a man called Derek French came to the club in 1982 uh, as, as, as physio. He seems to have been he a, came a, a as great a cab driver. He came as a cab driver. He was a taxi driver, <laughs> yeah, was he? Yeah, he still is probably, but he came as a cab driver. Tell us how well, he, was, he, was a, he, was a, he was part time physio at Barnet and he was a cab driver. Right. Okay. So, and it's been recommended to me. And as Frenchy said, he worked for one lunatic, Barry Fry. He said, and that he only there was only one lunatic at Barnet. When he came to Wimbledon, there were eleven, and he couldn't believe there were eleven lunatics. It, well, it's just he it turns up in the book, and he seems to have uh, Wally uh, Mark. He seems to have added to the the, the already very combustible mix there. He was well, good. he was just a good lad. He, he joined in, got in with all these scrapes and and laughs we had at the time. I think there was a time in Sweden when we went on a pre-season. Pre-season tour where we were messing around, hung him over the side of a boat. All of a sudden, another boat's come. Put it's a, a ferry, a, by put, the way. Not ferry, a put a, yeah, not a rowboat. Put a bit of a swell on the water, and the next minute, the boat has lurched towards the bank, and we've nearly killed him. So but luckily like, he's the physio, so he could cure well, himself once you fished him out. Well, well he, he was a better cab driver than he was physio. <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. We, we slung his physio bag in. Before we, well, we didn't throw him in, and it, he got it got posted to the ground about three months later. Yeah, with algae on it and seaweed and everything. I, I played I played one game where there was a pet. I picked up a pair of scissors on on the pitch, and Derek had been the only physio on the pitch at that time. And I took him across to him and said, "Derek, these must be yours." I said, "Which one? On the pitch? No, they're not mine." I said, "You're the only person who's been on the pitch, Derek." There's a pair of scissors that we played a professional football game. Um, the 
the, the atmosphere, I mean, it's, it's it actually, you make it sound idyllic. It sounds like a brilliant laugh. And uh, Wally pointed out that the games in those days were very physical and all the rest of it. Um, football fans, um, certainly of a certain uh, generation, love when these things get, get out of control. There was a game against Doncaster at Plough Lane. Alan Court was sent off and things got a bit heated in the tunnel after Billy, Billy Bremner was involved did you did you get involved in any fighting Dave? No 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 I kept, you left out kept, the players did I you? I kept that out of the way you know I didn't even know anything happened No it, it did happen in the tunnel the fella got Corky sent off and uh, there was a bit of a tear up in the tunnel kid got his nose broken and luckily enough, Francis Joseph was in the tunnel and he was a big fella and he was big black leather coat and he was slinging them around like rag dolls. <laughs> and their assistant came out of the uh, out of their dressing room trying to sort of throw his weight about. And, uh, you know, he soon backtracked and, and he hid himself in the referee's room while it was all going off. So uh, we called up before the FA as well and they wanted to know who the man in black was. <laughs> okay. Harry quickly told him it was Francis Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> um, you... Uh... You win promotion again. Finally, I think we do, we depart Division Four, having made many many visits. And uh, in 1982-83, I mention this because it's the first time when you really do dominate. You're the out, you were the outstanding team that year. 22 games unbeaten towards the end. Um, when all the laughing stops, I mean, I presume at some stage you have to say, right, this time we are not going to get relegated. We're going to stay in this division in the third tier and move on from there. Yeah, you could see the players grow. I mean, by this stage, uh, people like Wally and Mark and Hodges had nearly 200 games under their belt, or at least 100, 150. They were men now. But were they getting any better? Yeah, they were good. They were good players. They were good players. They, you, the reason they were in the team, and all of them at this particular stage, Gary Peters, who had joined us this year, had done a brilliant job as captain. He came in and adapted to the uh, crazy gang, which Wally had probably enlarged upon. We we had, you know, Mark Morris and Mick Smith, who'd been through all this, was a man. Besant had gone on from stage. As Gallias, who uh, Sanch was saying, was really beginning to show. Kettery again settled in that particular case and Hodges and Wally had great ability and we had Corky up front who was fantastic who could finish and his goal scoring was record so we were a good side I went into the third division that year confident we were going to go and we had a little bit of luck we signed this fellow Nigel Winterburn the following season well that wasn't a bad little signing for the club whose extraordinary pop star hair appears in one of the pictures in the book and when I I, I mean you know the book is full of interesting and funny things but when I opened that particular page when I worked here with Nigel um it just made me burst out laughing because there's absolutely no self-awareness in it. He's just got, just got big hair. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The world of football has changed so much that it's hard to believe that after that tri- that triumph, um, you ended up celebrating in a pub owned by a player who, you know, within the ten years previous to that had been win the double. Frank McClintock, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, we'd come home from Bury, and um, you know, everybody, the boys were brilliant. We were there. Uh, it was a bit difficult because uh, me and De- I was due to go out that night, and so was Frenchy. But the players decided we were going for a drink, and uh, as we got near Watford. Um, my trousers and shoes went flying out the window, some of French's gear. They wouldn't let us go off the uh, train and we ended up in, uh, you know, Houston and it was in Frank McClintock's pub and uh, I really don't know. Oh, no, we got a taxi because I, I said to French, we can't go on the uh, tube with uh, just underpants and a shirt and a tie on. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't have a tie. And Derek would have known the other ca- taxi drivers as well. So That's that right. Yeah, well, no, right. he was useless. He was useless. He didn't, couldn't get hold of anybody. <laughs> But, um, you know, obviously the wife wasn't best pleased when she saw me turn up at about one o'clock in the morning and um, I slept in the guest room. Once you got promoted, as I say, after the two relegations in five seasons and got back into uh, the third level, um, you've already explained that uh, the players were getting better and people like Mark and, and Wally and others. Um, and then you were starting to bring people in. Uh, N- Nigel Winterburn, I mean... Uh, it, it's extraordinary how many players went through the Wimbledon system, either starting at the club or go or or being dragged into the club, um, brought into the club, who go on to be really, really top class players. I mean, let's be honest, guys, it doesn't happen anymore that people very few. I mean, Jamie Vardy is a fantastic example of how you can come out of um, away from the top clubs and, and still make a, a name for yourself. But it was happening a lot at Wimbledon, wasn't it? Well, a lot of them, and the good with the youth players as well. I mean, that side that eventually we built all went on to great. Things Besant and Thorn to Newcastle, Gage to Aston Villa, Winterburn to Arsenal, Hodges to Newcastle, Wisey to Chelsea, uh, Vinny to Leeds. Uh, Wisey, um, sorry, so I said Wisey. Yeah. Uh, you know they all they all proved to be, and Fasher eventually played for England as well. Okay. Um, the rarely did any of our players go to any of the the, the clubs of divisions that we were in as well. When we were coming up, yeah, they never looked and thought. So I just say Reading when they're in the same division. They never looked at any of our players and thought oh, we'll take them there. Even in the fourth division, no one saw any of our players and thought that they were any better than what they had. No and, one ever. And it's the at- reason for that because they weren't any better, but you had a better team spirit or, or better tactics. What was the reason for that, Bolly? Well, it was probably a very symbiotic team. You know, if you if you, if you took us out individually, probably uh, no one saw that, that, that we were of any value, but. You know, if they'd have trusted themselves, trusted their judgment, or, or or took a chance on any of us, I'm sure any of us could have gone into most teams and and improved them or done well because we understood what we were doing. We've been well coached, and at this stage, we were good players. People, because of the way we played, they they use that as an excuse that you know we don't play that way and they couldn't play. But in the end, every one of those players played in the Premier League and proved, and clubs bought them and uh, they were successful. How any how we kept Corky for I I have not got a clue. He scored goals for fun. He was useless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they kept on saying, well, he, he can only score goals, but he's not very good in the build-up play. Sorry, I mean, I, anybody can get a ball over the goal line. Strikes me that's a pretty valuable thing to have in a football team. Well, it's surprising what people tell you, you know. Uh, 
you know, again, as I say, there was many. Well, I'm not sure Corky can play at the highest level. He's no very good in the build-up. Well, we knew he wasn't, so we used to get the ball in the box and he'd edit in. He got us at half-time once we're coming <laughs> off Corky. He's, he, me and I just come in and he's, gone, uh, he's sitting in the corner taking his boots off. Harry's going, what are you taking your boots off for, Corky? I'm not going out second half. Why not? I'm not going out, Harry, if they don't keep getting crosses in. Uh, so, Corky said, so I said, well, what, what are you talking about? Harry took Corky's side, so he started getting crosses you two in. And, if, and Corky said, the reason I'm taking my boots off is you know I'm no good on my feet. Put it in the air. <laughs> that was his reason at half-time. And they put the ball in the box. Uh, but he did put his boots back on, I take he put it. His yeah. boots back yeah. on, but right. thre- threatened us with that every half-time for the next two years <laughs> after that. It's, it's interesting to me that... Um, the, the way that the club had been going five or six years earlier, whereby they were being successful, gradually getting better, winning the Southern League, and then making their name through cup performances, actually repeats itself after a few years in the, in, in, in the league. You're going up the leagues, but there's two cup ties, one in, in the old Milk Cup, the League Cup, and one in the FA Cup in successive seasons against Nottingham Forest. Then, of course, um, a, a European power um, managed by if I might say so, and there are many candidates, but one of the greatest managers I think I've ever watched operate in Brian Clough. Tell us about those two games in the, in the, in the second round of the Milk Cup in October of 83. Yeah, well, we, we, we beat them 2-0 in the first leg, as it was then at that stage. And uh, then we went up to Nottingham, you know, for the second leg, and we drew one all, and uh, the boys did tremendously well. We, I mean, we murdered them at Plough Lane in the 2-0. I mean, Hodges scored with the 90th minute. It could have easily been up. Up there, obviously, it was a bit more of a difficult game, but uh, we dealt with it, and uh, we had a great time. How did Brian Clough react to this? Well, he took it very, very well. After the game, he came in and uh, introduced and uh, gave us himself and said, well played, terrific lads. And he brought a crate of champagne in for the boys. He said, you've done really well. You've done your club proud. Did you get any of that champagne, Mark? I think I must have drunk a fair bit that night because coming home on the train the next morning, I felt a bit worse aware. And I think we was at Scunthorpe on the Saturday. Uh-huh. And we got beat 5-1. So yes, you did. Must have, had a, must have had a fair bit. There. We went 1-0 up, though, didn't we? <laughs> Still a bit buzzy from that one. Uh, the following season, um, there is a, there's more to this, actually, if I go back to the book. Didn't, didn't the celebrations in Nottingham include, um, how can I put it, some of the, uh, the benefits of a female company? Yeah, there was. I think we was all in a nightclub, and the girls were coming along. And I think it, I, I think Stanley Reed let the cat out of the bag, the yeah. chairman at the time. Aha, uh-huh. we've come back on the on the well, train. We fell off the train. We fell off we? the train <laughs> at Euston. Um, television cameras and obviously waiting for you, waiting for us because we had such a great result. But um, then Stanley's come up and. Dropped a bombshell of how well all the uh, young ladies and girls had looked after us in Sheffield <laughs> that night. Not in Nottingham. <laughs> in not Nottingham. And uh, little did we know, we all had to go into the wives and girlfriends that yeah, afternoon. No, it was quite funny. They all had that because it was on like news at six. London and all of a sudden they've got it. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, this come out. And all the, and my wife goes, what went on last night? I said, I don't know, love. I went to bed early. Yeah. And the following season, the two you met again in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Um, after, a, after a draw against City Ground. Um, you Wimbledon, and this was a very, very incredible result again. They beat not, the mighty Nottingham Forest by a goal to nil at Plough Lane. Dory, you were there. Well done, you started yeah. that move. I remember, actually, because I used to watch, I think it was London Tonight, whatever the local yeah. London station yes. was, and I remember the season before and Stanley Reid coming out after this great win. Oh, hang on, we're going back to that. Good. Because yeah. you're I, safe I, enough here, yeah, aren't you? Cheers, Dan. <laughs> I, was, I was at home, and I remember coming out, and he, he said what he said, and you th- I'm thinking... 
their missus ain't going to be happy with them when they get home. <laughs> Little realising that a year later, I'm at the club. Um, How did you find, Laurie, look, we're talking to three men here um, who grew up with this club and it's unfolding. I mean, mm. It's a developing, it's, a, it's an unfolding culture that we're hearing about. You, of course, get rocketed from Reading, where you've played a couple of hundred games, of course, mm. straight into this. How did you find it? Well, I'm very, I, I find it difficult because I'm very much after the the crazy gang bit for me was the bit you've spoken about here from the fourth to the to the second yeah i joined in the as was the second division then and, and played you know obviously in, in the first and then the premier and i bridged that gap between uh, i played with some of these players a lot of these players are playing in the fourth division like stevie galliers like guppy like smithy like wally i should make the point that guppy is mark, mark morris's name why my <laughs> guppy mark I think it's had something to do with Tommy Cunningham uh, getting me mixed up with Fishenden one day and he kept on giving it fish, fish, and uh, while he's giving it, that ain't fish, Tommy, and he's giving it, well, he looks like a fish and we're calling Guppy. <laughs> so uh, instead of shutting my mouth and shutting up, I started complaining about it and that was that it for work. a, that was that in a day. Oh, mate. Sorry, Laurie, I just had to get that in there. Um, so I, I played with the majority of these players in the first division and then, to be fair, I was probably the one left after they all... They defected mm-hmm. with Harry to Sheffield and went on to other clubs. Defected, and such like. you use it like it's a treachery. And uh, and I ended up playing with the the latter days of the crate of what was this crazy gang Mark yeah. Two, if you want. So yes. I, I sort of bridged the gap a little bit. When I first joined there, I mean, I I was going to go for sign for Swindon with Lou Macari. Um, Reading were in the third, Swindon were in the fourth, Wimbledon were in the second. I got a phone call when I got home from talking to Lou Macari. So I come and talk to Wimbledon. I, I met Harry, spoke to him. They offered me exactly the same money I would have got playing in the fourth division to play in the second division. So, And the only reason I went was I thought, well, I want to play as high as I can. If I have a year in the second division, at least I'll have played to that level. Little realising that, you know, after 10 years at the club, what we'd have achieved. So, yes. I mean, I took it on that basis. First day I've turned up, sat next to Corky. And if you've ever been in a room with Corky, you need to take something to keep your enthusiasm going because he drains you. Um, for someone that... It was a centre forward and scored goals. I mean, you've never You'd met. You'd think someone... he'd be having a laugh, wouldn't you? You'd think he'd be enjoying himself. He didn't enjoy himself. No, <laughs> Corky's not a person who enjoys life. So um, I sat next to the first day in training, and we we trained. You've been down there, I'm sure, yeah. Richard Evans, yeah, and yeah. it was a transport calf. There was a transport calf with a Sunday morning Sunday um, change rooms attached to it, with the mud still on the ground. When we used to come in on Monday, there used to be mud on the ground from the players that played on Sunday in the local park. I've got there first day, turned up, sat next to Corky on this in this. It had no windows either, did it? No. It had dark, no windows. No. It was a dark room with a couple of, um, you know, fluorescent lights on, one of which never usually worked. And I sent it to Corky and he's gone, what are you doing? So this is me, enthusiastic, new club, new start, let's have a go. What have you come here for? This club's crap. Players are useless. Training grounds rubbish. We train. We train a transport calf managers. Use. We, why have you come here? And I, that, was my, that was my first conversation at Wimbledon. And I sat there thinking. Oh, what have I done? <laughs> Ten years later, as I say, I left the club, and you know they were still in the top level of football. And what? And the joyful thing is, of course, you still look at Richardson Evans, you, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, but Richardson Evans had changed a bit from then. Yeah. I mean, that's a classic example, Wimbledon story. They took it. They got because it's Wimbledon Common. You're not allowed to do anything on it. They got some sort of covenant they could use it. Put all these pitches down. Brilliant, big water water butt. They wouldn't water the pitches during the summer because they didn't want to pay for the water because it cost too much money. <laughs> during the next hour, we'll concentrate on the uh, on the era when you get up and uh, promoted uh, out of the second division into the top level of English football. An unbelievable rise. But Harry, I've got to ask you firstly, in the middle of all this, um, you leave the club. 
but only for very briefly. Again, you couldn't make it up. It's pure Wimbledon, this, isn't it? You went, you left to go to Crystal Palace. Yeah, well, what happened, we, we got promoted from the third division. The contract had, uh, had run out and Sam was dithering and uh, we couldn't come to a sort of a conclusion. But it wasn't a major problem for me. But then Ron Nodes, who was manager of Crystal Palace, and I'd known Ron since I was 14 years old, and, uh, you know, he was at Wimbledon with us. He then offered me the Palace job and uh, Ron did a very persuasive job that, you know, it was a step up for me. I was moving to a bigger club with bigger crowds, etc. More money, etc., etc. And he offered me a, a decent contract and everything else. And I got sucked in, really. I just thought, yeah, well, Sam doesn't seem to be that bothered, you know, really, in, in terms of what would happen. So I made the mistake of, you know, only basically because Ron asked me and persuasive anywhere else I wouldn't have gone. And I said, yeah, I'll go. And, uh, and Sort of when you make a decision, sometimes you have moments. And I remember going, it was on the Friday, I uh, uh, you know, went over there and was appointed the manager. And I went to the football writers' dinner. And you know, I remember a guy there, Keith, um, well, I forget what he's Fisher, who was the uh, sports editor to the uh, Daily Mirror at that time, said to me, What the hell, you must be mad, you know, why are you leaving and going to Crystal Palace? You know, you, you've got a job there. And, you know, it plays on your mind. And I went home and I didn't sleep great that night. And the next day I thought, no, I don't want to be there. I've really made a mistake. So I run, Ron. I went Ooh. over to see him. And um, I just said, look, Ron, it's not right. I don't want to be here. It's the wrong timing. You know, I turned down the Wimbledon job when you offered it to me back in when Dario got the job. It's the wrong timing. And to be fair, he was brilliant. He, he, he understood. He was disappointed. But, of course, the press tried to give Ron stick, saying he'd all of a sudden, straight away, tried to, you know, interfere with what had done. The door was still open at uh, Wimbledon. Stanley Reid, I <coughs> rang him, I said, you know, I'm going to stay. And he said, well, I'm delighted. And But Sam said to me, I want you to stay. He said, but you've bruised our relationship. You know, um, I'm disappointed. The fact that he left, Chris, went to go to Crystal Palace and come back uh, really had no influence. <laughs> well, good for you that you got to go back to Wimbledon. Terrible news for the players. He's come back. You thought you got shot of him. <laughs> well, we had to say, he, he told us he was leaving and we went and had a couple of beers in the, in the pub opposite the Oxford and Cambridge. And when he left, we carried on. We went up in the A&R in Tim Pan Alley. And by the time we finished, he'd come back. <laughs> so we had a celebration three days later when he'd come back again. Tell us about the season when you get promoted. Because uh, we talked we talk about the FA Cup thing. And even the fact that, of course, Wimbledon finished the top half of the table in some of these years uh, subsequently. Um, but it's the rise to from non-league in a few years up to the top level of, of English football. I think that, it, it, to me, is the heart of the story. What, about, what do you remember about the promotion year, Laurie? Well, I joined the previous year, I mean, about Christmas time. So He's going to take I, all the credit here, isn't he? Let's be I, honest. I, I took about six months to get used to what was going on. And, and much as they said about the ground, the one thing that was fantastic was the pitch. The, pitch, the, pitch, yeah. at, the pitch at Plough Lane was excellent. And also the other thing was it was quite a small pitch, um, which later on helped us with free kicks, with Vinny being able to throw the ball straight into the box. So the actual pitch at playing surface itself, you couldn't complain about. Um, it, everything else wasn't very good. But uh, So I had six months there. The following season, I think Nigel had come. Um, Nigel had got himself in. One or two players were signed, and we just started well and carried on going very, very well that season. We were up there for the majority of the season, I think, um, and then obviously got to the Huddersfield game where we we, we got to that a bit quick, didn't we? We clinched. We clinched. No, Laurie, it. You, sorry, yeah, we'll get we'll get on to when Laurie wins the, the league on his own. There. Um, what are you, what are your recollections of playing in that division? Well, I'd started breaking my leg about three years before, and I played about two hundred odd games up to the time I was twenty three. And the last three or four years, I'd, I'd three broken legs, so I was sort of watching it from afar, coming in, playing five or six games, breaking it, and but it, you know, watching the team evolve. 
were, was good. And you know, you, you see, like Mark would would now have been 23, 24, and an established player. You know, Sanchez come in, he's bossing the midfield. You know, and the spine of what we had. You, you're just watching the young players come in, fishing and looking good. Hodges was one of the most talented players around. Fishington was bone idle, but could score one of the best finishers I ever saw. You know, they, 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 you could really see the team blossoming. I mean, the the way you played. Uh, I mean, I always think there's a little bit of uh, nonsense about the, the the long ball game because I think half the team, no, most of the teams in England, for various reasons, were playing very directly by between the mid 80s and the mid 90s. Yeah. Um, personally speaking, I, I didn't think it was a fantastic way to watch football, but you know, it was being successful. Then there it was. But there were people who did get what you were doing. I mean, The name that struck me when we were doing the research for this that really flew off the page, Danny Blanchflower, no more no more of a football purist ever existed. He actually made a point of phoning up and coming to see you and to talk about the way you were playing. Yeah, that's right. He'd watched our progress and he just rung me up out of the blue and said, look, you know, I'd like to do something. I'd like to come and spend he a was, few he days. He was journalist at this time. Yeah, yeah. journalist for the uh, Sunday Express. And he said, I'd like to come down and have a look. Could You know, would you mind? I said, no, come down by all means. And he turned up. He was a terrific guy. He, he came in the cafe where, you know, we used to have sort of breakfast or midday meal if you wanted to and that. And then he watched the training and joined in. You know, I mean, he was there for a couple of days and he really enjoyed himself. And hence, you know, he, he did his article. Yeah, let's get back then to uh, John Fashnu joined. Will we talk about John Fashnu now or later, Laurie? Um, I, I think it, it was a um, pivotal moment, really. I mean, we were up at the top of the table. Um, it's coming to deadline day, and I don't know what happened between Sam and Harry, but he got him to spend some money, £125,000 for Fash, who on his day was the biggest handful centre-forward you could have in, in the country. And he came over to us from Millwall, and that pretty much helped us to get where we needed to go um with if it hadn't come would we still got up maybe but him coming was a sort of sign of intention one sam got his money out and realized money had to be paid two we got a forward that was you know was a great forward for corky as well um allowed corky not to have to do all the hard work and just put the ball in the goal and it it, it was it was a great sign and a great moment it allowed us not to fall away didn't it yeah I mean, it, it just pushed us a little bit further on. Well, we'll talk about John's personality and the things he said on that BT documentary, that which I think is fair to say uh, the book, The Crazy Gang, which Dave and, and Wally have put together, uh, is a response to a little later in the show. Let's get back to this moment when this club is heading towards the, the first division. I couldn't agree more with Harry Redknapp that this will never happen again. It's obvious that the game has just changed so much. Um, a 1-0 win over Stoke in uh, in Wimbledon's final home game meant you needed one more point to clinch promotion, as I've got it right here, with three away games left. Uh, the first of those three games was at uh, Leeds Road, Huddersfield, on the 3rd of May 1986. Um, a big uh, crowd, 300 Wimbledon fans, made the trip uh, up to Yorkshire for the game. It was played in a, in a storm of thunder and lightning. Some might say that was a, a, a an apt sort of atmosphere for the game. Um, I've got a, got a report on the game here from Joe Lovejoy, a <laughs> um, very famous uh, football writer. He said, this was a match littered with fouls ranging from petty to downright spiteful. Um, Huddersfield had two men sent off, ended with nine. And then, uh, well, the, we finally got a goal. Laurie, can you describe the goal? That, the, that's, I understand that you scored. That takes uh, Wimbledon into the first division. <laughs> yeah. It, it's strange because um, I'm on the ball with Kevin Gage and Glenn Hodges. Now, Glenn Hodges was our specialist taker um gagey did it right foot Hodges did it left and for some reason i don't know what happened i remember saying to gagey just roll it to me 
and he's literally rolled it to me. I've never taken part in free kicks before. <laughs> um, not not in not not in um, those type of free kicks. And uh, I, so why I, did I, you say I, that? Why did you tell him to roll it I to you? I have then? no idea. And to this day, <laughs> well, I have no he rolled idea. it to I don't him. Know I have what, no idea. Yeah, that's what Gage said to me. I can't understand why I did roll it to you because Hodges was there. <laughs> And, of course, um, has, has an absolute wand of a left foot. Yeah. yeah, but it had to be a right footer for this one. Anyway, rolled right. to me, and I, I've struck a great shot. And oh. It's flown in, <laughs> um, and uh, we hang on, hang on to um, to win, and obviously that counted up. But a lot of people, I mean, come to me after and say, "Oh, Laurie, Laurie, I was at the cup final, you know, Wimbledon fans." And I say, "Were you at Huddersfield?" Oh no, I wasn't Huddersfield. No, well, and the ones I do meet and say, "Yeah, I was Huddersfield," I say, "Well played, mate." I shake their hands because they were the, they say the three, the three hundred, <clears> then. You know, um, that that was they were the true fans. They were at Wembley as well. They're two great moments. A lot of people took on after we got got up. So it was a great moment. And then the most the best. He hasn't moment, asked about that. The best moment yeah. was um, June Whitfield. Oh, yeah. well, now of course now the, the, these, June Whitfield, bless her heart, bless her golden heart, is a proper Wimbledon fan. Yeah. Um, and I think. I've only seen her twice, though. I've seen her at the semi-final of the FA Cup and us getting yeah. pro to Huddersfield. But Absolutely. They tell me her husband, real... Tim, was used to drag her along. He was tell, the real t- fan. T- tell us about June Whitfield and tell us about the celebrations after the team went up mm-hmm. uh, in Huddersfield. Uh, I don't think they got too out of hand, did they? No. Who's coming home? Well, well still two games no, to go, wasn't it? It wasn't well, like Barry. June, June came in the change room, didn't she? And Huddersfield was like all those days, was small dress rooms and that. And everybody's jumping up and down. I think Bess, as totally starkers, yeah. stood on the stood on a bench, wasn't he? Stood on and she's going around mate. shaking everybody's hand <laughs> without realising that Bess is stood on the bench, stark naked. And of course, she walks straight oh, yeah. at eye level to shake his hand, <laughs> and he has to look up at him. And this, uh, and then she moves on very quickly. But um, she gives the impression wasn't that, that quick. She, <laughs> yeah, she attempted to shake his hand anyway. Well, the actual figures were that uh, that uh, at the end of that season. Um, you were third in the uh, in the division. Norwich won the title. Uh, Charlton Athletic was second. Uh, amazing season. Um, you can see 37 goals, which the research we did shows it was half what you can see the previous Please. year when you're much more open. Um, and the thing that really, really strikes me, well, let's take Wally's broken leg out of it. Um, of the 12 players who played at Huddersfield, um, eight had played in the side that won promotion from the third division. I mean, it's an incredibly organic progress through these leagues which I guess Dave uh, you put down to the fact that you had made this decision you were going to go well alright it could be one or two things you'd made the decision that you were going to go with the players you brought through your own system or the fact that Sam Man wouldn't buy any players for you well, the team adjusted. You know, we, we we ended up buying one or two players, Dave Martin and John Kay, uh, where I felt we just need a bit more strength. But really, they found it difficult to get in the team because the team that even in third division, Besant in goal, uh, Gage took over from Gary Peters, Winterburn was already there, Mark Morris was there with Mick Smith. But then Thorne, Gary, uh, Andy Thorne and then Brian Gale came on. They came through the youth team, so they were developing. Uh, we still had Galliers, Sanch in midfield, it was Hodges wide, Fishington wide. Or, or Wally, and we had Corky and Stuart Evans. And then there was the younger ones like Vaughan Ryan, Andy Clements that we'd come through. So our, our team, Andy Sayer, Andy Sayer. So over half of our playing squad, which was probably about 18 or 19 in that last year, were all played for the youth team. You know what? We talked about Danny Blanchflower saying that the, uh, it was, you know, what he did, a positive thing. I think Amy Dunphy, my, I think one of the best critics of football in the modern world, also said this is fine, but this was not a universally 
held view. Um, Ted Croker, who was the rather blazered head of the FA secretary at the time, Wimbledon, he said, are totally incapable of staging first division football. To bring top clubs like Manchester United uh, and Tottenham to a ground like that is ridiculous, he said. Someone just not getting what we were about. That's exactly the, the, the whole reason that we got from where we got to where we got was because we didn't really care about that sort of thing. And we they got plenty of people with the FA talking very similar at the moment, didn't they? But it, it, to be fair, it was true. I mean, the, the, the stadium wasn't the stadium. I mean, he's having to go to the stadium. I mean, yes, I, I think yeah, he's yeah. having to go to the team. No, it was a no we'll get on to that in a and, minute. And it was only the Premier League that forced us to move to play all our games away from home at Sellhurst. Brian Talbot, um, a decent player, but an England player in his time. He said that, uh, i quote again here, they will be slaughtered in the first division playing the way he they do. He could have played for us, though, Dan, because he was just an up-and-downer. He yeah, couldn't pass he was tough, yeah. yeah. As well as that, the, the thing you talked about earlier on, Wally, about the... That being motivated by being the the worst paid and all the rest of it, um, your players. I don't know if they're all on the same money, but it says here that in the top level of English football, and this is now in living memory, on three hundred and ten pounds a week. Is that right? Well, I remember when Joe Kinnear was at Doncaster. He, uh, I think it was Goldie's first year. Joe, I was coming back from injury. He rang up and said, "Could I go there on loan?" Uh, and he said, but the problem is, Donks were in the fourth division. He said, uh, the problem is, well, I can only give you 600 quid a week. I think I was getting four and a half in the first division at Wimbledon. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's how it, it was. started well. You were top after four games. Yeah, that's right. We uh, lost, we took the lead at Manchester City, and then uh, Simpson, the left winger, went berserk and created havoc, and we lost 3 1. But mm. uh, we then had home games against Villa, 1 3 2. Le- Leicester, uh, we beat on the next game. Then went to Watford and won there. Went to Charlton and won there, and we were top of the league. Um, had Vinny Jones joined you by this stage for the yeah, first Vi- season? Yeah, yeah. Vinny had come in the summer. He'd been. What worked- was the idea of signing Vinny? Well, he'd what, been did you, recomm- what did you Alan- seen in him? Alan Batsford recommended him to me. Obviously, Alan Batsford was manager of Wildstone at this time, and Alan, I kept in touch. He'd recommended Francis Joseph when I uh, was at, uh, at Hillingdon Borough before. I trusted Alan, and I went and saw Vinny play a few times, and I just felt with his enthusiasm and determination, and he was athletic, he was uh, strong, um, and I just thought, well, you know, what can you get for 10,000? And... Um, you know, that was it. And so Vinny come round. We sent him to Sweden, which was great, uh, to prepare himself. And he did terrific when he went out over to a team in Sweden for the summer. He came back and he was in the squad. Now that he said in the papers today that he's never coming back to England, I think we can talk quite safely about this now. Whenever you read about this era and about Vinny in particular, people say, oh, don't forget, of course, he could really play. Could he? Could he really play? Yeah, he'd have, he, 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 in training, he'd, he'd ping a like 40, 50 yard balls right he'd a volley in he's but good finisher he, yeah, he, he could play but you know he, he wasn't <laughs> his most accurate pass was his throw yeah, he, he, he wasn't he wasn't dainty but uh, you know he, he, he was terrific to have around the place and he was he, he was very similar sort of similar to Sanch the thing I say the thing I say about Vinny and I say it to my players when I was when I was in Northern Ireland is he was an average top division player but if he walked into a bar with Alan Shearer people recognised Vinny first because Vinny believed that he was excellent. And now when he's, he's acting with De Niro, he believes he's as good a, good a actor as De Niro. And Vinny believes that. And that's what it's got into where he is, that he's made 50-odd movies in Hollywood, that he's played for Chelsea, he's played at Sheffield United, he's won an FA Cup winning. From someone that had come literally off the building sites to Wimbledon as a 20-year-old kid, his self-belief, unless you meet him, is, is unbelievable. He's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, the other coming back to this first season in this division, 
we now see teams. Um, you can tell me how how this game has changed then, because we see teams now, and they come out of the the the, the, the lower the, the championships. It is now, they are hell bent on finishing seventeenth. They 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 spend money. They know that if they can just win ten games, draw a couple of games, luckily, you finish seventeenth. You finish sixth. You beat Manchester United. You beat Chelsea. Is it that it's not possible now, or are teams just not ambitious enough when they come out of the lower league? They're brainwashed after teams to play in the same way as the top sides. And instead of going out and actually trying to compete on on their strengths, they try and take teams on on their, on their the opponent's strengths. I see it time and time again these days. Where I look at it and give it, you can't match up against Arsenal. Are you trying to pass it? And, and the teams that do well against Arsenal are the ones that suddenly just give it. We're going to get in their faces. We're going to have a go against these today. And if Arsenal do get beat, it's normally against a side that does that. And then you think, well, why don't more people take that on board? And you do that Wednesday the other night. Yeah, so a team that's prepared to really get in their faces and have a go. Yeah, I know it's, it's more difficult in modern day football. But the with the and Blanche Flowers, we spoke about earlier, he said that they saw what we did. The thing was, because what we did, we did it well. And now Barcelona do what they do very well. Most other teams are a poor pastiche of Barcelona. And that's why it's boring. We did our thing, and I think the people that you spoke about earlier, they saw that, say, they do their thing, they do it right, and they flame in spot on about it, and it's efficient, and it works for them. Other teams tried to copy us a little bit and did it poorly, and that's where it's probably got a bad name from, because when we played, we were spot on. The problem with with other managers and commentators at the time is they didn't think that we couldn't do anything else. The fact that we did what we did and did it successfully didn't mean to say that we could play any other way. If you look at, as Harry was saying earlier on, players that went on and played at different clubs, different styles, they were very blinkered and biased in the way they, they saw the way we played. We said about the Everton team that won the league. I mean, yeah. I mean, we used to get videos. Vince Craven, who used to do some of our technical stuff, we used to show us videos of, of how they played, how their knockdowns in midfield, how they won by Peter Reid and people like that. You know, sharp up front. And they were an excellent example of what... Well, they never played it out till they, at the back till they were 2 new up. And that's why they were a great team, because they got 2 new up, then they started playing it out the back, and then all of a sudden you've got a different problem. And they, their confidence was good. They I mean, were a top team. You've all got coaching badges. You've coached mm. clubs um, to promotions and, and championships and international teams even. Would it be possible to play as Wimbledon played in the top level of English football in this year when you finish sixth, don't forget, now? Could somebody put together 11, 20 players to do it? It could be done, and it could be done efficiently, and it could be done well, and you could be successful. But like um, Tony Pulis found at Stoke, once someone starts to undermine that this isn't attractive and the tide moves against him, then you have a hard thing. Unless you're going to actually win trophies, you've got a hard hard thing to hold it up. You can win trophies not just playing football, passing, 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 and not winning trophies, and people will accept it and say... As they did at Arsenal for years and years. Well, this is lovely. We love watching this because it's we don't win trophies, but you know. So he got away with it, Wenger. Um, Tony Pulis got to cup finals. If he'd won a trophy in the cup final, he might have got away with it longer at Stoke. You know, the supporters, are, uh, the public, are, are very uh, snob, snobby about the media. Are well, yeah, but also the fans because you know with the, the with the clearance now, you hear the fans going hoof. You know, and, and that can be very undermining. You need you need a strong manager. You need strong players with self belief to to get through it. And the only way you do that is by winning the games. And then you can you know stick it up. And, and the reason away. we got away with it is because we had no crowd. You know, they, there weren't people going to have a go because they just they couldn't believe what they yeah, were seeing. I think if you're winning, if you're winning and, and you're and you're playing 
a virulent sort of game, then uh, your home fans will be with you. Now, I think Stoke Stoke got fed up of it after six or seven years. I think part part of the problem is the difference is that even now, then, people were paying 10 quid to get into the game. Now, people... I am paying sixty plus pounds to each game of football. It's very easy to convince people who are paying sixty quid that they need to be seeing something special, isn't it? That's part of the issue. Yeah, but are they seeing anything special? No, I ain't. No, if you were doing something, yeah, better. if you do something special, would you go and watch Real Madrid and Barcelona? Wouldn't you? You'd start going over there because they're special. They're miles in front of anything that we've got in this country. Every team, Man City, occasionally dump Bournemouth five-one. Well, you'd expect that yeah. to be the case. But you, I don't see particularly Manchester United, Man City last week. What, no, a terrible what, game. What Absolutely a terrible game. game. Yeah, you, that, that's entertainment, is it? It was a pastiche of a proper game of football, wasn't well, it? As they sort of just sort of danced around each other. Dave and Wally, why did you decide to write the book, and why now? Well, there's been a lot of talk over the years about a book being done and it's sometimes getting the time to do it. And when the documentary came out about the crazy gang, I just felt that that wasn't correct. It didn't sort of relate to You're talking to my about the, the recent documentary on BT, which they made a huge fuss about, um, and which, just to give the background, appeared to concentrate uh, more on the thuggery of the uh, sometimes associated with the club or accused of being associated with the club and majored on an interview with John Fashion who just made out the whole thing was like a madhouse well as I say I went to that and uh, I mean they didn't do their research really they wanted to do it on the 1988 cup final and uh, when they started interviewing the players and the crazy gang they didn't realise what had gone in the preceding six or seven years and they sort of jumped on the bandwagon at that particular time and I can't say what happened after I left you Mm -hmm. know what the the Fash might relate to in that particular time might be true I don't know but I felt that uh, I you know, I wanted to do something. And it was interesting, and one or two people, and less strong, I was talking to him at Fulham one day, and he said, Harry, he said, what you did at Wimbledon was one of the greatest football stories in the history of the game. You've got to do a book. You've got to tell people to rise up. He said, you actually, it was nine years, but when you look at it, you got to the top league in four years. Fourth yeah. division, third division, second division, second division. You finished up six, and a year later, they win the FA Cup. He said, you tell me. He said any team from non-league in all that particular time. And then I, I sort of said to Wally, I didn't necessarily fancy him myself. He'd been there and I sort of had a chat with him. Do you fancy doing it? And, you know. Well, I, th- I thought it was important that, uh, that the players who had been part of it got to mention, you know, if, if it was going to be the crazy game. They probably couldn't get the money together without just making it the cup final and getting fashion wisey and Vin. So that, that got the programme made. But it neglected all the players that sort of come through and, and made that possible. So uh, I was, I, to be fair, I wasn't too bothered about the programme because, you know, Fash is, he's, he's all right, Fash, but if you stick a microphone in front of him from long enough, he's, he's going to come out with something that's going to upset the majority of people. So I just wanted, you know, a little bit of redress and to get the people like, you know, Mark didn't get a mention or a little mention, Mickey Smith and Gallias. You know, they were the people with the heartbeat of the club that had been that had got us to the position for that documentary to get made. So there wasn't any malice on it from my point of view with a documentary, but I just wanted to redress it and get the other players mentioned in it who've been a big part of it. And the book, of course, gives you, the you know, an hour-long programme compared to a book. This is much more detailed um, and it allows you to actually tell the story, good and bad, in, in, in more detail, and you've talked to you've talked to a lot of your ex-teammates. To make, the book works as a series of interviews, doesn't it? Short interviews. Yeah, well, um, we we didn't go into it 
trying to do that. It just mm-hmm. evolved that way, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we, we did interviews with players and, and we wanted a thread going through. We didn't want it to be like a chronological thing of we played these and we beat no. them and we did that. Uh, so, we've, you know, it's the first time I've, I've ever been involved in doing a book. and, 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 it, and it, it Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it? yeah, I did. Well, meeting up with the lads was great and we got together for the first time in over 30 years because we got no ground to go back to and have old boy reunion. So, it you know, and reading reading their interpretation on things as well because if we'd have been if Dave and I'd have been sitting in on the meetings perhaps it would have been a bit different but they were given carte blanche to say what they want and how they felt and and uh, you know I, um, I think it's come out okay Mark you're as you say we heard there you're one of the people who who uh, it was felt having played in all four divisions his voice wasn't heard you weren't mentioned perhaps enough in that documentary um, was did you enjoy being asked about these old days? Are you enjoying this program? And is there anything that you, when you were asked to, for, to contribute to the book, you thought you didn't want to talk about? No, I think it, it all depends what kind of character you are. Some people want to blurt it out, and other people keep their their memories more private. Um, the book itself, I've, I've read it now. I think it's fantastic. Is it? Is it got, a fair a fair? representation of what yeah. your memories are yeah because i think the good thing about it as well it's just not sense it tells the one story is the laughs and the jokes and that but the, the one thing that's always missed out a little bit for all these stories is the hard work the discipline the sacrifices that people have had to make to do what they've done in their careers i mean there's a lot of hard work by players management even the people behind the scenes at wimbledon it, you know, people in the offices and that it was. You forget about all these things, and it just turns up, materializes itself in a magnificent and fantastic cup final win. But there's a lot of people along the way that uh, deserve to be part of that story as well. Let me ask you. I mean, Laurie, you're sat there as well. Something that Mark said there absolutely struck me to the heart. Um, when you all meet up, the people who did this remarkable thing. You don't have a ground to meet at. There isn't. Re- there isn't. A Wimbledon Football Club anymore. How difficult is that? That your your memories are no longer encased. Every other footballer, you have your memories in the ground and the collective memory of the supporters of that club who carry on the tradition. They're not there for Wimbledon. It's a strange situation. Um, you know that we spent all that time and all that effort and everything. And, and you know, it's it's a bit controversial because of obviously what happened with the two clubs. Um, obviously, the fans that stood on the terrace in in '88 have gone and formed their own club AFC, which I think is probably the second best story in football from where they've got to where they are now Brilliant. after this one. But whether I like it or not, I never played for AFC Wimbledon. Um, Wally never played for AFC Wimbledon. Guppy never played for AFC Wimbledon. The team that we played for was a team that was moved to Sellhurst in the first place, which I didn't like. We used to say we played 38 games a year away from home, um, which made the achievement at Sellhurst even more important, if you think think about it. Then that team was then allowed to move to Milton Keynes. Um, you know, I understand it can no longer be done because the FA have changed that down. Well, it was it was ridiculous. So, I mean, I, it was absolutely ridiculous. So the team we play for, as someone said to me once, has given birth to two two children: one legitimate, one illegitimate, and it's depending which one you want to call that. Um, and I know there are people with the original Wimbledon that are still involved with with MK Dons. Um, I'm I'm not. I mean, I always take it as the scene in. Um, Back to the Future being relevant this week, where he's playing the guitar and he's got the picture of his parents stuck to the end of the guitar and he has to keep playing so that they get together so that um, he can be, his future can, and I feel that we're a bit like that. The picture of my my, my past is that picture falling away. Um, and we go down to AFC and we all support AFC and what they've done, it's an unbelievable job. 
but I never played for AFC. We're coming to the most high-profile moment that this team, this club, ever enjoyed, the 1988 Cup Final, um, by which time uh, many of my guests here were no longer with the club. Mark, you left just uh, before the, 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 uh, the triumph. Um, how hard was it to leave? A cl- you, you'd been there all your adult life, indeed, well, I guess since you were a kid, um, and it was such a unique and, as we've been hearing, different place. How hard was it to move on, or is it just something you have to do because you're a footballer? Well, it's something you have to do, but it was very, very hard. Your memories and everything are steeped in that club. Um, the fact of the, the matter was the club had two young centre-halves coming through, um, Andy Thorne and Brian Gale, and I could just see that my my time was going to be limited at the football club. Um, Dave went on to Watford, and when he went to Watford, he, he gave me the shout and... I ended up joining him there. As often happens. Why, why, Dave, why did you leave Wimbledon at the height of their powers? Because you did leave at the height of their powers. Well, my contract was running out that year and I couldn't agree a contract with Sam. It just went on and on and on. You'd have thought he'd have wanted to tie me up. But I think, in a way, Sam felt he wasn't getting the credit from the fans and I was getting the credit for the fans. Really? You think that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Sam, when you sort of know him, he's got to be head of the family and it's his decisions. And he wanted to put a clause in the contract saying that he could pick the team. He said, I never will, but you've got to understand big business, you know, the chief exec. So I knew that was the scene. I didn't want to leave Wimbledon, but I just knew that this the time was there um, for, for me to move on and um, it, it, as I say it was very sad because as I say you know that day when we beat Sheffield Wednesday 2-0 at Hillsborough on, on the last game of the season I knew that was sort of the last game we had to go to Scarborough for a charity but I just walked out and I thought all those years and what's been achieved and this is the end and uh, you know Sam's had it off. The the end doesn't... I mean, you could argue that you going... Um, people like Mark going, who've been through all the leagues, it's the end of the story. It isn't, because the, the, the public face of the story does go on, but mm. reaches a kind of high-water mark with the 88 Cup Final. And we've done a whole programme, actually, in this series of My Sporting Life on that. And I, Bobby Gould was here and Terry Gibson. Poor old Ray Houghton of Liverpool at the time had to sit through the, uh, the extraordinary uh, antics of that team even then, um, which, Laurie, you were part of. Of course, your goal is now one of the most well-remembered goals in the history of English football. Tell us about the run to the cup final. Uh, West Bromwich Albion, Mansfield, Newcastle, Watford and Luton. Um, I remember we should have gone out to Mansfield. Um, I think Terry Phelan got got, got us uh, the winner on a pitch of their place that we should have lost on. Um, I remember it in Newcastle, Mirandinha chased Dave Besant around a pitch. Um, or best chased Dave Mirandinha after the game around the pitch. Um, West Brom, I can't remember. I remember Mick Hartford put Luton ahead 1-0 in the semi-final and we got back to 2-1. Played in front of 23,000 people, I believe, at White Hart Lane. One of the only semi-finals you could have paid to get in on. I mean, that was the, it, it's an extraordinary thought, that, isn't it? It was local, really local for both teams. And they, uh... Liverpool Forest were sold out, couldn't get a ticket for yeah, it. of course. We wanted to avoid both those teams because they were at the peak of their powers at that time. Um, and we were playing Luton, which was a team we were well capable of beating. And um, as I say, you could have, you could have turned up on the day, bought a ticket for a semi-final, and watched it with twenty-three thousand other people. And tell me, can you remember how you got to the ground? Were you in the minivan with Bobby Gould, or did you take your own transport? I, I drove. Because um, he told me that half the team were supposed to. He said, "Any you can get to the ground, drive." He drove half the team on a minivan, and they were stopped very close to here on Blackfriars Bridge by the police. And he had to explain there would be no semi-final of the FA Cup. 
if he didn't let them get through there? Well, I think it was the escort, wasn't it? The police escort that usually turned out to meet the, the, the bus had met him on the bridge and said, where's the bus? He said, well, this is it. <laughs> this is it. it but you've you got to remember in those days, it was easier for players who lived all over London to get to London grounds by making their own way there rather yeah. than come all the way to Plough Lane and then fight away across London traffic. And... Um, I won't. I won't let you describe um, the, uh, your your winning goal. We can actually hear the highlights now. This is the FA Cup final in 1988. There's no detail of it that hasn't been unturned um, by documentaries, by programs like this. And yet, every time you think about it, let's not pretend it was the greatest upset of all time. They were in the top half of the table, Wimbledon. But given the history, the relative history of European champions Liverpool and Wimbledon, who've come from where we've heard of today, it still sets the hair <laughs> on the back of your head arise. Mark, where did you watch the game? I was actually at Wembley, sitting in the stands. Uh, me and Glenn Hodges went to watch. We both left the club that season. Yeah, so we were there. So, um, How did that make you feel, watching them win the FA Cup? Well, you, you've been at a football club a long, long time. You dream about, could that have been me out there? You just don't know. It's uh, the decisions you make in life. Uh, I was just glad to see yeah. fellas that I'd grown up with lifting you know, their dreams. It was fantastic. Wally, where were you? I was in a hotel room in Bristol playing with Sheffield United in a playoff game. Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was watching on TV. And your your response, your reaction to the well, goal? Well, no? I mean, it was it was brilliant. It was you know, it, was, it it for me, I I hadn't been part of it since Bob got there. I'd had a broken leg yes. and I weren't getting a game, so I'd moved on and I had to get a game. So I said it, it it was great. It was like closing a chapter on my life. You know, I'd been there when we got into the first division, so that was great. Uh, the year before, got to the quarterfinals again. I would say that I thought we had a, a, mm. a, as good a team the year before, mm-hmm, possibly mm-hmm. could have gone on the day. So to see them, all my mates winning the, the cup final and scoring a goal, you know, that had been born on the dress on the training pitch, ten fifteen years before, was great for me. And, and it was like closing the chapter on my life and sort of getting with everything else. And Dave, if anything, um, your association even longer having been a player there from the mid-70s, managed them through the leagues. Where did you watch the game? I was working for the uh, television uh, with Ian St John. He was doing punditry, he was both doing co-commentary and everything else. And uh, it was loving him. He really hated every minute of it. He was uh, so upset, he really was. And, uh, I bet you loved that. I loved it. It was a little giggle. And, you know, he just couldn't believe it. He just said, I don't know how this mob, they're used how they beat Liverpool. I really don't know. But that was being derogatory, really. I think he was just at the raving ump, really. And it was great. It was great to see the boys. with best saving the penalty. Sanch getting the goal. Why is he putting the free kick in Thorny giving the penalty away and, and the combination and it was terrific I was delighted you know it, it, it really was because uh, I'd have loved to have been there I'd have loved to have been Bobby Gould that day of course you would but I wasn't jealous I was envious Laurie the book will put the record straight about the, the Craze Gang and whether there is no longer a Wimbledon FC that we recognise that name is etched into the base upon which the FA Cup stands um, so it's a very important goal and a very a, a reality that can never be taken away um, the celebrations afterwards, proper Wimbledon celebrations, or were you more seasoned pros by those days? No, what I do remember, the one thing I do remember is, um, you know, we went up and got the cup and we gave interviews and such like on the pitch. And by the time we actually gone around the pitch to celebrate, um, of course, you've got to remember, there's, I think it was the last standing final at Wembley, so it was about 98,000. Of that, seven, 8,000 were probably Wimbledon fans. Of course, ninety odd thousand Liverpool fans weren't going to stand and celebrate us winning the cup, so they disappeared. And so the stadium was empty by the time we went round it. I think we saw Harry up in one of the commentary booths, and we, right, we, yeah. showed, we showed the cup up to him. Amazing. Um, you know, didn't know Mark was there till just now, but it was 
yeah, it, it it was a Wimbledon celebration, but you know the immenseness of it. Like it, we've lived through all this. When you're living through it, you don't realise what it is. No, it's only when people write about it afterwards. You know, it wasn't glamorous when we were doing all this stuff. We were doing it on bottom dollar. Um, most of us still have to work now. We're not, you know, we're not the multi-millionaires of today that can have half a dozen, couple of years, and then pack it in. Most of the players have other jobs that they have to carry on working for. It wasn't glamorous, but now when you read about it, my son, my son saw the documentary. Didn't know anything about my playing career. I wait till he came back from Australia to watch the documentary with him. Much as I didn't agree with it, he said, that's great. I didn't realise you did that, Dad. And it, it's only in hindsight does he look fantastic. And, and you know, um, the peak was... The, you say the peak was a cup final. I think the peak was signing John Artson. I think the fact that Wimbledon went out and spent eight million quid on a player and played a player a million quid a year was the peak. It was the peak and it was the beginning of the end. Absolutely. That's a great place for us to almost bring us to halt. If I could ask you very, very briefly each... Because um, I want to give people details of the book, Mark. If looking back on everything we talked about, uh, your, the beginning of your adult life, what's your memory? What's the thing you'll cherish most about these amazing ten or so years that we talked about? Just really, really glad to be part of it, and it's probably made me the man I am today. Wally, what about you? Uh, I think it's the, the camaraderie that <clears throat> that we managed to get as a group. That uh, I think footballers don't have the opportunity to get today with two two years, two and a half years together. We were together for a bloody long time and every day was enjoyable. Every day we learnt something and every day we enjoyed one another's company. And it was, you know, that's as Mark said, you know, it, it, it forms your life. And if I could leave the last word, I'm sure you won't mind me leaving the last word to Dave, Harry Bassett, to, uh, to his close friends and all the players called him Harry. Um, you yourself, all those years you spent in and around Wimbledon, what is the thing that now warms you at night? Well, the memories, 13 years as a player, assistant manager and manager and uh, working with incredible people who, who were for the cause and I've got great respect for them and uh, at the same time, I think I've got personal relationships with them. Uh, not very close, but I feel personal. I just feel they're part of a great family and I just think I was uh, very fortunate to, to go through that period and what we achieved, as I said, you know, was it's, it's, to me, it's one of the most... It's got to be one of the best success football stories ever, you know, what anybody says. And the fact that we don't get the credit, well, we've had our little day and we've had a book and we'll enjoy the future. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.